Well, that little sound tells me it's recording. So as I just said, we are, we're doing the general letters and that's, that's gonna take us by the end of this class session, Lord willing, to where we have surveyed everything in the New Testament with the exception of the Revelation of John, which is what will be next week. So when we start off saying, do you have any questions or is there anything you wanna make sure that we address? What we're, we're basically saying now is about any of the New Testament, with the exception of the Revelation of John, because we'll hold that for next week. But if you have any questions about anything else, this would be a great time to bring them up so that I can be sure that we address them in some way. Just a time frame designation. Uh, were first, second, and third John written at the same time as Revelation? So again, timelines, and that is a good question for pretty much all of these, and I will cover that in the, the process. Any others? I know we talked about canon, but were there other letters by other apostles that were ever considered or still exist or we've seen or anything? The quick answer is that we there are many letters with a claim to be written by many different people, including numerous of the apostles. Uh, probably the most well-known would be the uh, document, it's not a letter, it's a document called the uh, Gospel of Thomas. Um, the problem is it pretty obviously was written about 200 years after Thomas would have died, which makes it hard for it to be the Gospel of Thomas. Um, it has never, ever been accepted by any church, any uh, council, etc. Um, and that's, that's pretty much a good example of what happens, is that there's, there's lots of, of letters, that are, or letters or books that are brought up and then labeled as being written by somebody or uh, being canonical. Um, but when you apply the standards that we looked at in that first class session, uh, they just, it just doesn't fit them. How about the book of Hebrews? We're going to be looking at that tonight. Any others? So. I will count that one as referenced. Okay, so before we dive in, let's do this. The, the idea of doing this survey is to get a handle on the New Testament as a whole, rather than, you know, we hear about these different books and different letters but they seem to be just very disconnected and disjointed. So help me, what, what have you gotten so far in terms of how the New Testament is organized, how the books are connected with one another, where you would go if you were looking for specific things? What are you walking away with at this point? me, my notes that I've been taking, I, will still, I still go back and look at them. Because it's not just going to sink in okay. everything you've said. So what you're walking away with is you're not sure yet. 
We've got to go back true. and, that's and true. That's true. readjust this stuff. That's true. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. What's the difference between the Gospels and Paul's letters? Well, the Gospels are synoptic. They, they tell the story of when Christ was alive. And Paul's letters and a lot of the, most of the other letters seem like they're addressing Christian living now that the church has been founded. Okay. Um, and, and mostly there. The go- only three of the Gospels are considered synoptic. Yeah. Remember, synoptic means to, to see together. Um, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, would definitely not be. But, yes, they are all basically biographies of Christ. Whereas the letters are not attempting to be biographical. They're obviously referencing Christ. They're obviously uh, written by people who belong to Jesus and to people who belong to Jesus. But they are written uh, to various groups, various people, various individuals for specific reasons to help them to know how to live as Christians in two broad categories. One is what to believe, one is what to do. So how am I supposed to be thinking? What am I supposed to be believing? What am I supposed to be doing? What is faithful in these circumstances? So a big difference, and this is something that, this is one of those big things that's easy to get hold of. The gospels are biographical. The, none of the other books are, okay? The, the book of Acts has some biographical information regarding uh, Peter and John, uh, regarding Paul, regarding a few of Paul's uh, assistants, if you will, but it's very, very selective because it's written not as an individual's biography, but as a history so what is the book of Acts a history of? The Acts of the Apostles. Okay. But specifically, which apostles? You're going to hear precious little about Thomas in there. Peter and Paul. Okay. Mostly Peter and Paul. Um, again, in the early days, Peter and John tended to be together a lot. But almost all of it's going to be Peter and Paul. And... When does it begin chronologically? Does anybody remember? Pentecost. Well, okay. Mm, a few days before, yeah. but about three, because they're being told to go and wait for Pentecost. At the ascension. Well, in regards yeah. to the okay. Apostles' Acts, Well, and, and Luke wasn't actually an apostle, and not, in, not in the capital A sense. Remember, we, we talked about the difference that the word apostle basically means somebody sent with a mission. Uh, we would literally call them missionaries. But the 12 that were chosen by Jesus were given a special level of authority and, frankly, special powers. For example, Luke hung with Paul. Okay, you, you, those two are together. Whenever we hear about Luke, it's in connection with Paul. Paul was known to have had the ability to do certain miraculous things. Okay, now he didn't run around doing miracles all the time. He didn't put on a show, and that's one of the interesting things about the Book of Acts. There's a, a section in the beginning of, uh, of the the part where 
the apostles are leaving Jerusalem and being spread out where the miracles themselves become the issue. Uh, we hear the story of Simon, not Peter, but um, a magician. Simon the magician, and the Latin for magician is magus, so it, it comes across as Simon Magus through history. Um, Simon wanted to buy the power that the apostles showed when they healed people. He thought, this is so cool. This would be fantastic in my act. And so he literally approaches Peter and wants to buy this power. Peter, of course, is rather incensed that he would be asked such a thing and uh, explains in no uncertain terms that this is not a trick, it is not magic, and it's not for sale. Today, throughout history, there's a term that, that was developed that academically, at least today, still means the attempt or desire to buy uh, religious favor. It's called simony, and it comes from Simon's name. That's Simon, not Peter. Okay, so the book of Acts begins at the beginning of the church, basically, which, which happened roughly three days after the ascension. So the gospels end, the book of Acts begin. There's a little bit of an overlap. Talk about it like it's almost like a TV show. You know, one episode, and then they backtrack in previous episode and give you a little bit and then move on to what's coming. And the book of Acts ends in the early 60s or right about 60. Some would place it maybe 58 even um, with Paul being arrested and being held captive uh, by the Romans um, in Syria, not in Rome. Um, and then two years later, a new governor coming in, Paul appearing before that governor and claiming his right to be heard by the emperor and then being sent to Rome. And the book of Acts ends with that trip. Some believe that Luke partially completed the trip with them. There's a section where uh, the ship actually was shipwrecked and their trip was interrupted until um, Roman soldiers could be sent to escort them, uh, bring them the rest of the way. And uh, we don't hear anything in scripture about that. But we know that Paul went on to Rome. We know that there was a hearing before uh, Caesar, particularly uh, the Caesar that was in power at the time, and that he was released. So why didn't Luke not write that stuff? Uh, some believe it was because he left Paul there and traveled on his own to get to Rome, or went to some of the other churches while they were waiting. and traveled to Rome separately because you see the pronouns change in the book of Acts when Luke is there and when he's not. When he's there it's we went. When he's not it's they went. Okay. What were the letters of Paul that were considered pastoral letters about? Why are they pastoral letters? Live the Christian life. 
Well, some of it was that, but they were giving specific people those instructions in the pastoral letters. So who were those people? Timothy, Timothy Titus. Titus, and what were they to Paul? His students. Okay. Students, assistants. Um, so they were functioning in a, in a role where they were, in essence, the emissaries of the apostles. And they were sent, Ephesus and Crete respectively, to make sure that things were flowing smoothly, where they worked, to put them in order, to teach such things as need, need be to live the Christian life. But the emphasis in those two letters is actually on the function of the church and the leadership of the church because it was written to the leaders uh, who were then working with the leaders of the local church and making sure things were going smoothly. Now, why is that important for us today? Well, we need to know how to run a church today, not just on tradition. Yeah. If you are a Christian, then you are part of the church. <coughs> You understand what I'm saying? If you're a Christian, you are a part of the church. See, that's not you get to be, or maybe you will join one. We have congregations. Those are smaller groups within the kingdom, the church. How is it that those are supposed to conduct themselves? Well, if you look around, you'll find a lot of disagreement about that. And you'll find people pretty much, frankly, doing whatever they want to do. We believe that the scriptures give us a pretty clear understanding of how that's supposed to happen. And so by looking back, particularly at those letters, we see a pattern that is reinforced in other letters and other in the book of Acts in terms of how the New Testament church was actually uh, organized to the extent it was organized. It absolutely was organized. Um, how big, by the way, were the New Testament churches? And yes, that's a trick question. After I said that, nobody wants to... Well, some of them were small. Okay. You know, house, house size. Okay. But Particularly some of the newer ones right. in the areas that would have been considered the mission field. Right. Like Asia Minor. Hmm? Okay. And then you said, but... But, I mean, obviously, in like, pick one of the big cities that the church letters were sent to, they were probably pretty good size, maybe not mega, mega church by our standards, but probably thousands maybe, especially in Jerusalem and well, where everything's scattered. If, if you read in the book of Acts, in Acts 2 and 3, you'll find that the end of the first day the church existed, the church in Jerusalem would be what we would consider a mega church. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people, just like that. So, yeah, they absolutely, and they saw themselves as a church. See, not as different churches, but we're a church. Um, we know from the book of Acts that Paul's travels, as he uh, was headed back to that fateful meeting in Jerusalem that ended up with him being arrested, um, went through Ephesus and stopped and taught for a while. Uh, to the people in the church in Ephesus, people he knew already because he had founded that church. This is the famous place where he bored a guy to death. You know the story? 
great. I love the story. I mean, every preacher ought to have that memorized and pray that a lot. Because um, there was a guy sitting in an upper level. Uh, they were in an upper room in a, uh, a building that was clearly not just a house. It was a meeting building for some reason. So the church was big enough to need a separate building. And there were many, many churches like that. Um, the church in Rome was such that uh, they couldn't meet in one place, both because of size and because uh, the size of Rome itself, and frankly because the majority of them were slaves. So they had to meet when they could get away. So they were known for meeting in caves or in what we today call the catacombs, which are basically the underground tombs that crisscrossed under the city or parts of the city. They met anywhere they could have large spaces. Finish the story, by the way, the guy in Ephesus, um, he, um, he was sitting in an upper level room and Paul was talking and Paul just went on and on and on into the early morning hours. Yes, you should be grateful. Um, and the fellow just fell asleep and fell out the window and broke his neck, apparently. It doesn't say he broke his neck. It just said, fell out the window and died. And Paul was so upset about it. And remember, Paul um, was one of those big A apostles. He literally went out and raised him from the dead. Now, you won't see that happening any other place. And my suspicion is that the Lord only allowed it to happen there for a very specific reason. Okay, this little exercise we're doing is a very important one. And we're going to do it again at the beginning of next week. Because the idea is, I, I want you guys to have a good feel, not just for each book, who wrote it, when was it written. And, you know, hopefully you'll keep these handouts and you'll keep the electronic versions and you'll be able to refer to them. I hope they're useful to you. There's, there's a reason we give them to you. But I want you to have this. Yeah, the Gospels are this. The Gospels, they're bio, biography. And you've got the synoptics, the three. They were written pretty much the same time, pretty much by people who knew each other and my suspicion who actually worked together in writing them. And then you've got John written 30-some years later when he knew what was already written. And so you see him, in essence, filling in gaps. And then you've got the book of Acts, picking up where the Gospels leave historically and giving us a picture of the formation of the church and how the church came to be uh, this small group of people and then a large small group of people because thousands is still nothing compared to the millions that it was even by the end of the first century. Um, and went from being this small group of people who were Jewish and responding to the Jewish Messiah to becoming an international faith. A faith that was for all nations, all people. And the book of Acts basically documents that, covering roughly 30 years. Then you have the letters, many of them written by Paul, and we've, we've talked about them, but yes, the general idea of the letters is now people are living in different circumstances, different places. There's wealthy people, there's poor people, there's people who own slaves, there's slaves. And the thing they have in common is they all belong to Jesus. How are they supposed to live? 
And what are they supposed to believe? Because there was, by this time, a lot of false teaching coming out that if you believed it would turn you away from the Lord. Today, all of those things are true. We have an enormous lack of understanding how to live as a Christian in the church today. And I'm going to say particularly in the American church because my life has been, has been spent serving in the American church. But as I look at churches in other parts of the world, the thing that I realize is the impact the American church has on them because we produce so much written material, because we have the wealth to sort of export all of our teaching, our music, all the other stuff, because we send out missionaries and historically have been the biggest source of missionaries going to the world in general. So you go to Thailand and you got Southern Baptists in Thailand. Does anybody understand just how ironic that is? What is a Southern Baptist, by the way? How did, how did Southern Baptists come about? It's, it's exactly what you might be thinking if you're thinking Southern. It was the Civil War era, the Southern Church. When the congregations in the South. Right. Baptist congregations Baptist in the South. So when the Civil War broke out, um, you had churches everywhere. And indeed, you had people trying to justify through scripture and through their Christian faith, slavery and fighting for the South, and then people trying to justify uh, the Union and fighting against them the same way. So that should not surprise or, for Christians, bother us too terribly. Satan himself tried to use scripture, right? When he was trying to tempt Jesus. So it's no big mystery that people in the world, people who are after their own agenda, would, would use scripture. But people who were Baptist, they, they were Baptist. There was a certain set of beliefs that was very different than, say, the Anglicans or the Episcopalians, as they became, the Wesleyans, the uh, Lutherans, the Presbyterians. Uh, these are not interchangeable. They're not interchangeable today. They're very distinct differences. But Baptists were Baptists, and they weren't different from each other, except the fact that they were trying to kill each other because they were fighting this war. So a very natural split happened right along the Mason-Dixon line, and the Baptist churches south of the Mason-Dixon line became known as Southern Baptist. And yes, that is exactly where the Southern Baptist Conference started. The northern ones became known as, because they were emphasizing the Union, American Baptists. And that is the beginning of what we know as the American Baptist denomination. There's no Mason-Dixon line in Bangkok. But the influence of the American church is so strong that there's a very strong Southern Baptist presence and a strong General Baptist presence and American Baptist presence and on and on. Those divisions have continued even to the other side of the planet 150 or 60 years later. It's astounding. So American Christians set the pace for Christianity in the world right now. 
That may not be true in 20 years, 30 years. Who knows? But it is still true today. That means we have the opportunity, if we take our faith seriously, if we understand the word, if we live consistently with the word, to make a change, not just in our congregations, our families, but everywhere. But we've got to take that very seriously. And the way we do that is to be able to be in the Word, and the way we do that is to know where do you go in the Word. Because frankly, reading about the dimensions of Ezekiel's temple is probably not going to do it. Probably going to need a little bit more specifics than that. Tonight, we continue that effort, the effort of looking at the letters that were written to Christians, just like us, who were being tempted to believe things that were lies and that were counter to the teachings of the gospel and who were in living situations where they just needed to know how to live. What does faithful look like in this circumstance? And the difference between these, what we call the general letters and the letters that we have already looked at is what I, I said earlier and, and several of you almost smiled and snickered except I wasn't joking. The difference is these are the ones that weren't written by Paul. Paul was so prolific that his letters dominate. So these are the other ones. Okay? Doesn't make them obviously any, any less important. They're very important. And in fact, some of my most, okay, I'll say it, my favorite passages, I'm not really supposed to do that, I suppose. Favorite passages, it's all inspired by God. But some of the ones that have hit me the most deeply and, and made the biggest difference in my life are in these passages. And it's important for us to know them and to know what it is they teach because if, if you're in my class and you need to go back and look at the notes and review things to get a bigger picture, then think what it's like for the scripture itself. Because I'm certainly not claiming any inspiration in here. But God's word is inspired. And if I'm going to study God's word, I'm not going to do it once. Right? I'm going to learn, for example, the book of James as a new Christian. And then, six years later, as a, a brand new minister, I'm going to learn it, and I'm going to learn it in a whole different way. I'm asking different questions. My life is different. Now, I'm a married man instead of a, a teenager. Ten years later, I'm going to learn it in a different way. Now I'm a father, and I'm a guy who's got ten years of ministry experience. Today, I'm going to learn it in a different way. See, I'm, my life changes, and therefore, the things that I need to be learning and applying are not the same. So the very same part of Scripture is something that's going to be needed over and over and over in different ways. So we're going to keep coming back to it. The more we understand the New Testament, the easier it is for us to do that, to go back and access those letters, those books, those passages. All right, so the section is the general letters. The books include the letters, first of all, um, the letter to the Hebrews. Now, we talk about the book of Hebrews, the book of James. Um, all the letters are referred to as books. The fact of the matter is, when I think of book, I think of thickness. Do you? 
I mean, when I think a book, I think this. When I think letter, I think either a, small, a, a note card or an email or something. And not an email. An email, right? So the fact is, a lot of the letters are exactly that. They're fairly brief. But two of the letters are longer than the others, really four of them. The Corinthian letters are both pretty lengthy. The Roman letter is certainly lengthy. And then the letter to the Hebrews. Now the letter to the Hebrews is exactly what it sounds like. It was written to Hebrew Christians. Hebrew is another word for Jew at that time. Technically a Hebrew is anybody descended from Abraham. But by this time it was a word being uh, used just to refer to Jews. James is in this, the book of James. Um, first and second Peter. We're studying through second Peter in on Sunday mornings right now. And then first, second, and third John um, and Jude. Now, first John is it's it's a book, small book, thinner letter. Second, third John, very small. Jude, very small. We're talking like half a page. So letter, letter. Thank you. So if you're going to read those or study through them, it's going to be a much briefer study than if you're looking at the letter to the Hebrews, which is significantly longer and packed with a lot more things in it. The authors, um, and again, I'm going to go through them um, per, or, or book by book, letter by letter. Hebrews, and we talked about this a little bit last week, we don't know. Many people believe it is written by Paul, and that's why it comes in the organization of the New Testament. You have Paul's letters all stacked together from the book of Acts to Hebrews. And then you've got Hebrews. So if you believe Hebrews is written by Paul, then it's in that letter. But if you believe it's not, I am in that camp, then it's the beginning of the general letters, not written by Paul. So by placing it right in the middle, they satisfied everybody. Um, who was it written by? Well, we don't know. Bottom line, don't know. So lots of speculation. I've got my own favorite uh, theory or two. Um, I've got one I really believe is probably true, and I've got one I wish was true. Um, but the, the fact is we can surmise certain things. This is obviously somebody who understood the Jewish church. So very, very unlikely it was a Gentile. Okay. Could have been, but unlikely. It was somebody who had uh, a deep understanding of the Old Testament and of how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. And it was somebody who had a sense of authority within this Jewish Christian community. Now, I just narrowed it down to people we know of, several dozen. And that's only the ones we know of, and we're 2,000 years later, I guarantee you, there were a lot of others. Uh, personally, I like Apollos for this. But who knows? Pardon? Um, maybe, except it's a very, very different literary style, and Luke was not Jewish. Luke was Greek. So it's unlikely that Luke would have known the things that are referenced in the Hebrew letter. But again, it's all speculation. Okay, 
the book of James, and I'm going to skip down to the last, the book of Jude. Both of them letters, not really books, were written by James and Jude. Jude is a name also Judah, and another form, Judas. See, to us, those are very different names. To uh, a Hebrew at this time, it's the same name. It's just coming into different languages. It's like um, Yanni, Yanos in Greek, is in Spanish, Juan in Spanish. And in English, John. It's the same name. So we've got three different ways of saying it, and indeed, in Orange County, we've got enough cultural differences that you'll find people who use it in all three ways. Same with, with Jude. Um, James and Jude were brothers and were the brothers of Jesus. Now that freaks a lot of people out, and the reason is that there is a tradition, particularly in the Roman church, that Mary was a perpetual virgin meaning not only was Jesus born as, uh, with, with Mary as a virgin, but that Mary then lived with Joseph the rest of her life, or his life at least. He died before she did. Um, married to him, but no sex. Um, how many of you are married? How many of you believe this? Yeah. And doctrinally, we know why this came up. It's a doctrine that developed several hundred years after Christ. Um, and it came out uh, partly out of the Greek dualism that we've talked about, where flesh and spirit are seen as in opposition. Flesh is entirely bad, spirit entirely good. Right? So Jesus, spirit. Mary, flesh. Sex, serious flesh. Sex, bad, because it's flesh. Therefore, Mary, who we believe was a very good woman, who scripture actually says was a good woman, um, well, they don't use the word good, but high rated, Mary could not possibly have had gone into a marriage with sex. Okay. There's only one point in time that that could have been come up with and not just been laughed out of everywhere and it was when this doctrine of asceticism was, was being accepted as representative of true spirituality if you're really spiritual you deny anything physical okay you will not find that in the New Testament what you will find is a list of names referred to as Jesus brothers who by the way did not accept him as the Messiah. During his ministry, they were, they were, come on, come on, man, you're embarrassing us. Why don't you just come home? They were trying to get him to stop. Um, we don't know exactly when they came to the Lord, but we do know that James was one of those to whom Jesus appeared in the resurrection. My suspicion is the other brothers, and that at that time, uh, when you're standing there staring at a very alive Jesus whom you saw die, that probably had some impact on him. So James and Jude both not only became Christian, but became leaders. Um, and James particularly was uh, recorded in Acts 15 
acting with the apostles in the role of elder in the church in Jerusalem. So we know that they were, they were very highly uh, thought of, not just because they were Jesus' brothers, but because of their own faith and their own leadership. Um, James was uh, also known as James the Just, also known as Old Camel Knees, because uh, apparently he was on his knees so much in prayer that uh, his knees had problems. Um, Simon Peter, the apostle, also known as Cephas or Cephas. Um, we don't really know how Aramaic was pronounced, but um, that was his Aramaic name. Um, he, of course, was the author of the letters that we refer to as First and Second Peter. John the Apostle, also known as the disciple uh, whom Jesus loved, um, which a better translation really would be Jesus' friend, or maybe Jesus' best friend. Um, the brother of James, not the same James. James then and now was a very common name. So there were two Apostle James, two Apostle Jews, or Judas, um, and two Simons, come to think of it. Um, but John and James were uh, two very young brothers, and John was uh, young enough that uh, he was able to survive. We've talked a lot about him with the Gospel of John, so I'm going to go on. Uh, the dates, Hebrews thought to be 60 to 70 AD, almost certainly not after 70 AD. Is there any history buff who can guess as to why? Destruction of Jerusalem. You got it. This is a letter written to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus over the law and the following of Jesus, the Christian faith, over the legalistic Judaism. And that's basically the outline of the letter. Because these were people who were being told by the synagogues, if you believe in Jesus, we're done with you. You're dead to us. That's where that phrase began, by the way. We will treat you as though you were dead. The Gentiles already hated them because they're Jews. Now the Jews are saying, we won't have anything to do with you. It put them in a very dangerous, physically dangerous position. And they were simply being told, you must return to the faith of the synagogue, the law, and give up this ridiculous faith in Jesus that the Gentiles are pushing. The Hebrew writer writes to encourage them. I know you're going through, he says, fiery trials, but hang in there and encourages them not only understanding who Jesus actually is, but what happens in their life if they're willing to not go back on their faith. Okay. Now, with that kind of an argument, if this had been written in 71 AD, if I'm the author, what do you suppose the chances are I'm not going to add, and by the way, God has even allowed the temple to be destroyed. So how can the temple be more important than the Messiah? But there's no mention of it whatsoever. This was arguably for 
Jews who, do, who are not Messianic, one of the three or four most important dates in the history of their, of their people. And no mention of it. That's why nobody really believes it was written after 70, because it's just inconceivable that it wouldn't be one of the primary arguments. Um, for James, it's thought to be one of the earlier, uh, but there's usually about a 15-year span, 45 to 59 AD. Um, we know it was written in, in very basic terms. It was sharing some extremely basic things. So it's thought to be one of the earlier ones simply because the, the more time that went by, the more uh, teaching the churches had. Uh, First Peter, usually dated in the mid-60s, 65-ish, Second Peter, 66. Uh, we know prior, both of them prior to uh, the end of 66 or the beginning of 67, because that was the Neolonian persecution when both Peter and Paul were executed. So it would have been very difficult for Peter to write that letter after he was dead. First uh, John, generally dated mid-90s. Second and third John, depending on what you think they are, um, anywhere from the early 90s to roughly 100 AD. John is thought to have died approximately 100 AD. We do not know when or how. There's simply no record of it. Um, but we know that the Revelation of John, for example, was probably written roughly 98. So that brings him pretty much to the end of the first century. Um, many would say that 2nd and 3rd John were written in 95, if 1st John was, because they see 2nd and 3rd John as more or less cover letters to go with the general encyclical letter of First John. So encyclical means to, uh, to uh, circle, to send it around. So uh, an encyclical would have been received and then either copied and then passed on to others or just passed on, depending on how urgent it was seen. And it, it would have been read by as many different communities of Christians as they could get it out to uh, in a period of time. Um, second and third John are thought by many to be written to a church and a, an individual um, as first John was being delivered and started off on its cycle, if you will, of uh, the tour of churches to, to whom it would be read. So if that's the case, then certainly it would have been written at the same time and delivered at the same time. Again, there's nothing in these documents that says this was written at the same time as that other letter you've got that you're calling First John. Because you'll notice John didn't say First John at the top of his letter. He just wrote a letter like we would. Okay, Jude um, typically considered to be written about the same time as Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter, uh, a lot of similarities. And in fact, there are many who would believe something similar about Second uh, Peter and Jude as I believe about the synoptics. The similarities are so striking that it is highly unlikely they would be coincidental. Um, now, it's not coincidental if they're written by people who know each other two people who are very similar for the same reason. So 
um, if you and I work together and we're, we're discussing issues and we both decide to write about those issues to people in uh, Oregon, what do you suppose the chances are we're going to use similar language or maybe even the same language with some phrases? Since we know each other and we're talking about it with each other. Peter absolutely knew Jesus' brothers. We know that from the Gospels. This is 30-some years later. So the odds are very, very good that they'd spent time uh, working together in different ways, leading together. And it's just no surprise that they're going to either collaborate or come up with something similar. In general, the purpose of Hebrews was to establish the superiority of Christianity over traditional Judaism, to which the Hebrew Christians were being extorted to go back to. It wasn't, uh, as we say today, uh, of course you can be a Jew and be a Christian. The Jews allowed that, the Jewish authorities allowed that for the first 30 years or so of the church. And then, because the church spread to us so much, by us I mean non-Jews, Gentiles, there was a hatred between them. And they basically got together, there was a uh, council of Jew, of uh, Jewish um, rabbis in uh, Jerusalem in the early 60s, and they sent out a proclamation to all of the uh, synagogues throughout the Roman world with the authority of Jerusalem behind them. And to a Jew, that's, that was huge. Saying, anyone who is a Jew who accepts this teaching that Jesus is the Messiah is to be put out of the synagogue. So that's what created the situation that these Hebrew Christians were in and the reason this letter was written. James was a general letter of instruction. Uh, First Peter, uh, basically a letter of encouragement. Second Peter, as we've talked about, is to combat false teaching, call them back to the teaching that he has already given them. And that's why we're entitling that series, Remember. Uh, First John was to establish the certainty of faith and belonging and to combat, again, heresy. What does that word mean, by the way? I'm using the word. Anybody know what that means? How many of you think it's good? So we got a general impression this is a bad thing, right? Maybe that's because people like me talk about the Bible being written to combat it. So if the Bible's being written to combat it, it's probably not a good thing. In general, that's what it means today. What it originally meant was different teaching. And so a heretic was somebody who was teaching something different from the truth. Ends up being the same thing. Um, But the word heretic throughout history has gained all sorts of interesting baggage. When you hear heretic, other than what I just said, what do you think of? Okay, you think of a crazy guy. Somebody that the established church once destroyed. That's what I think of, a rebel. Somebody who's fighting the establishment. Now, 
if you do simple math, my age is 62, that brings you back to me growing up in an era where question authority was the bumper sticker of the decade, right? And so, yeah, that, that really resonated with me. Heretics sounded good. It was kind of hurtful to find out the heretics weren't good. They were, they were the ones we were supposed to be afraid of and be careful of. Um, and they are because they are people who teach against Scripture, against the Holy Spirit, against Jesus. Different teaching. Now, in that is the hint of exclusivity. And if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll find it's not a hint. It is absolute claim. Today, we live in a society that values everybody believing anything they want, and we should honor it all. I will honor the image of God in anyone. But there are some things that are just plain stupid. And there are some things that are just plain wrong. And I will not honor those things. Okay? And by the way, they're quite blunt in saying the same about me. Um, now, the, the, the real trick is to love those people while not honoring what they teach. We're never told that we can hate heretics. We can hate the heresy. That's the teaching that harms people. But we're never told we have the right to hate or do anything but love the heretic. When I think of it, by the way, I am drawn back to some movies that I saw in my adolescence that involved uh, people being called heretics and then put in little cages, sat on top of giant piles of sticks, and set on fire which happened a lot in the Middle Ages because the power of the crown and the power of the church reinforced each other. So if you fought against the church or the teachings of the church, if you taught against those, the crown came after you. And by the crown, I mean the king, the guy with armies. So he had the power, and the church used that. And by the church, I mean the Roman Catholic Church in Europe during the Middle Ages because it was almost exclusively that. But that's heritage that most of us are linked to with European heritage. So that's an image that comes to mind to me a lot. And it just drives me back to this. Heresy is to be put down. But whatever that means, it doesn't mean harming people. It means loving people and correcting false teaching. Does that work? And if you look at these letters that are there to combat heresy, I guarantee you there's not going to be anything in there about treating people in, in anything short of a loving way. It's not there. Okay. So, 1 John... Uh, partly to combat heresy. Second and third John, again, really, I obviously, I wrote this there. I, I believe they were cover letters uh, written to the church, second John, and to a gentleman named Gaius, third John. And then Jude, again, uh, to combat false teaching that was rising up very much the same as uh, first Peter. So 
I've given you a lot of the background already. Um, let me stop before I push forward here and just ask, are there any questions you've got about any of this? Because I'm throwing a lot at you, and I know that. Thousand years ago, Solomon wrote, "There is nothing new under the And okay, literally, yeah, we've got clocks and computers that I'm pretty sure Solomon didn't have. But people are people, yeah. And and life tends to go in cycles, and those cycles, unfortunately, are both very predictable and almost impossible to stop." It's like the history of humanity is one giant Greek tragedy. You know what Greek tragedies? It's, it's the old Greek uh, literary style that presents a tragic story. And what makes it tragic is everybody reading it knows exactly the cliff they're about to run off, the way things are going to be devastating for them, and that they don't have to do that if they'll just change something. If they just wouldn't be that way, if they would just decide to do this instead, it could be avoided, but it never is. And the point of the Greek tragedy is humanity typically doesn't change. And it's still true. Now, I say typically because the teaching of Christianity is we can. Some of you are living examples of that. I am a living example of that that life can change, people can change. And we don't have to have that same cycle going over and over and over. But the rest of the world still doing it. My suspicion is, well, until the Lord comes back. Any other thoughts, questions, comments about what we've covered so far? Okay, if you look at the part on uh, the second page, actually it's the, the second, yeah, it's the second page. It says content summary. Starts with Hebrews. I want to walk you through this because, again, it's important to know what's in each package. Think of these as, um, as containers. And as you go through life, you're going to need things in the, that are in these containers. So... Yeah, you can start from scratch and look at every container and look through everything in every container until you find what you're looking for, which is what a lot of people do with the Bible. And it's also why the majority of people give up and stop doing it. You know, I've got a question. You guys have any questions about life? What subjects in life do you have questions about? Death. Death. Life tends to go to death. The answer is here, okay? Does that make sense? So I say to you, the answer is here. Here's the book, find it. 
How many people do you suppose are going to do that? Look at the size of print. <laughs> oh, there's my wolf picture. But other than that, look at the size of print. How many are going to say, okay, I'm going to find it? They're going to start in Genesis. They're going to go all the way to the end of the Revelation until they get the answers that they're looking for, which they will get if they look, if they read it all. How many of you have done that? Now, what's another question you might ask? Question about life. How do you give? Okay. That's a big one. Keep hearing all this forgive stuff. Well, I'm certainly not going to read the Old Testament because we all know there's no forgiveness in the Old Testament. Which, by the way, baloney. Um, but if I read the Bible, I'm going to find what forgiveness means. I'm going to find how to forgive. I'm going to find how I've been forgiven. And I'm going to see the link between those two. So here's the book. Look it up. Who does that? Randy. <laughs> well, not in a sense, not from Genesis through the Revelation. No. I've become a little more systematic than that. There are some Bibles, I think I have one at home, that um, if you want a, information about death or faith or forgiveness and stuff, they have a listing in the back. Got a little index. Yeah, index. Yeah. Yeah, and, and sections they recommend. Sure. What those are is uh, translators will do the translation, and then they will have commentators add stuff. Um, number one, make sure you understand that's not inspired. Okay? Because I've gone through some of those lists and looked up, that has nothing to do with that. Well, they think it does. So now we have a little discussion between that person and me. Say. But they can be useful. But I guarantee you, they're not going to list everything you're looking for. It's like a concordance. You guys know how to use a concordance. Concordance is, a, is it's words that are used in the Bible. So you go to the concordance, you find the word, because you know there's a verse about that word, but you can't remember where it is. Well, you can start at Genesis 1 and go through the Revelation until you find it, which will take you a long time, particularly if you do this two or three times a day. Or you can go to a concordance and look it up. The problem is the concordance that's at the back of this Bible is, ooh. One page. Oh, no. There's at least 30. But they're very thin pages. You see? So what I'm doing is hoping that they thought to list the word that I want to look up. Those lists. I'm hoping they thought of the subject I need. And don't pick big subjects. Death is going to be one of them. Because we all face death. Love. Sorrow. You know, the, the, the big things. But what if I'm looking for something specific? So I can go to an exhaustive concordance. We, I, I'm pointing over there, by the way. The room right across the hallway has got a large number of paper copy, not electronic, Bible study tools. They can be used there or they can be checked out. Okay? Um, and we've got a dozen or so exhaustive concordances. An exhaustive concordance has got every word and every time it's used. Now, why you want to know 
How many times the word the was used? I don't know. But if you want to, it's over there. But the cool thing about it is whatever that word is you've got, you know the word is there, then I guarantee you the passage you will find. So what we're doing now is we're building an awareness of not only the scripture, but tools to use in studying the scripture. And that's exactly what the survey is about, is to help you understand that uh, the, the gospels are this bin. Maybe the synoptics are a bin. So, you know, I'm going to go here to, to read certain types of things. John is a different bin. I'm going to go there to get other certain types of things. The book of Acts is a different thing. I want to know the history. I want to know how the things got started. I want to know what the early church actually was like as it practiced being the church. Then that's the bin I go to. I want to know about marriage and how a Christian should act in marriage. What bin do I go to? We go to the letters because the letters are written to tell us the truth and how to live it. Okay? That's the point of the letters. So the truth meaning to correct the false teaching, the heresy, and then here's how you live. Now, specifically, Paul's letters address that a fair amount. Um, I don't know that there's any particular reason that Paul does that. Peter does some. But particularly in First Peter, but not near as much as Paul does. So now, as soon as I know that, or maybe I stumble on that by looking up the word marriage or the word husband or the word wife in that exhaustive concordance, where I'm going to see all of the listings, and I'm just going, whoa, there's a whole lot of Corinthians in there. Then, okay, that's the bin I go to now when I want to know about marriage, or at least a place to start. This is what it is to, to have a handle on the forest. And it allows us then to use the Bible as a tool and not to have a Bible that is a reference work no one ever looks at. Do you guys remember the family Bible? Do you, do you have that tradition? I remember one in our home. <clears throat> I grew up as a pagan, but we had a family Bible no one ever, ever, ever opened that thing. It was more of a, I don't know, it was like a good luck charm or something. You're just supposed to have one in the house. I, I take it back. There were uh, births and deaths, because in those days you had, you know, like the genealogical forms, and they were in the beginning of the family Bible, and those were being filled out. My mother would open it up and write those in. But other than that, no one opened it. When I became a Christian, I went to it and I was kind of curious because I had a Bible that was given to me by someone else, but this one's a family Bible. How's it different? Imagine my shock to find out it was the same books that was in this one, yeah. but no one ever read it. And I believe one of the reasons, I mean, in my family, no one cared, to be honest, but one of the reasons why we get that way is this thing seems so daunting. I'm supposed to find what I'm looking for in life in this? And the answer is yes. Paul says that the Holy Spirit has ensured that this 
gives us everything we need to teach each other, to correct each other, to live, and to grow in righteousness. But we've got to be willing to get into it. Now, by the way, for the modern, a comment about modern things, does that look real well used? Can you not see? since you've had your computer. <laughs> it's not very well used. Mm -hmm. This is a new American standard for my first 10 years here, I think. I preached out of the NIV. And um, when, when we switched to the new American standard on Sunday morning, um, my new American standard that I'd been using since 1974 um, literally was and is falling apart. And it was it's about this big like this with bigger print which for me that's nice been wearing glasses since I was six years old and um, bright red except kind of pink now because it's you know 40 years old and I actually used it a lot so you look at it and it's like whoa somebody's actually used that thing but you look at this one and you think really seriously these, these things nobody's ever turned to that page and you might be right I carry it and I use it. But by far, I read on this thing now. And it doesn't matter. So if it, is it paperback? Is it leather? Is it a big, giant, ornate thing? Does it have pictures in it? Pictures are not inspired. You do understand, right? <laughs> it's not like the Holy Spirit had an artist going, here, draw him. You know. They're inspired, but not by God. Um, yeah, they're not inspired. Um, and... They don't have to be on paper at all. So for the last 20 years, I have done virtually all of my Bible study on a computer. I haven't found it hurting me any at all. So I just opened to Hebrews 12.5. I bet I did that faster than you could because the computer is pretty fast, you know? Okay. Let's look at some of the, the content summary here. Hebrews, uh, this gives you basically an outline of Hebrews, but you'll notice better, 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 and that's the point. Jesus is a better messenger than the angels, even. And by the way, it doesn't just talk about the angels, it talks about the prophets and, you know, all the ways that God used to get his word across. But then he used son. Not the son, son. It's, it's worded in such a way as to present a quality. Instead of using apostle or prophet or strange spiritual being, whatever an angel is, he used son. He's a better apostle than Moses, a better priest than the Aaronic priesthood, uh, up to and including the high priest a better covenant than the old covenant, a better sacrifice than the sacrifice of animals. Uh, faith is better. So the means of relating to God is better because it's faith versus legalism. And then in the 13th chapter, and here's how you live that out. Here's how you practice that. James, standards of living faith, James is extraordinarily practical. I'm sorry. 
Can you define the word apostasy? I've seen it in here, and is it the same as heresy, or? Um, Heresy has to do with teaching. Apostasy has to do with me and what I do. So uh, literally, it means to stand from, stand back from. Um, apostasy, Apostasy is to fall away from the faith, to turn my back on the faith. So I would do that if I was in those times. I might do that because the idea of being burned alive really didn't appeal to me. Uh, and Nero came up with that one too. Nero used to dip people in tar, and Christians in tar, not just Christians, but they, they were his favorite target. And then light, uh, have them like every 15 feet, and he would light them. And that was how he lit giant uh, passageways. And these were not, by the way, some isolated places. These were, by definition, places lots of people were going to be because this was a message, right? Um, so if I see that, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't like this, right? Or maybe I'm one of those Greeks who says, no, I really do buy this whole spirit, flesh, that can't be the same. Therefore, Jesus could not possibly be God who became flesh because God is spirit and, and spirit wouldn't be flesh, wouldn't want to be flesh. And then um, I might be somebody who got later on picked up by it when I started looking at that philosophy and looked at the teaching of the resurrection and said, you're telling me that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. Wait a minute. Jesus is spirit. Even if he was in a human body for some period of time, like I am trapped, why in the world would he want to be in it again? Because spirit and body, spirit and flesh, they don't get along. One's good, one's bad, totally. So I would see Paul's teaching on the resurrection that says, in essence, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is worthless. Go party. It doesn't matter. Life is meaningless. But he did. That's 1 Corinthians 15 in a very short paraphrase. I might be one of the ones who says, yeah, but I don't think he did, so I'm going to go party. I fall away. Okay? All right. First Peter talks about suffering um, and, and salvation through suffering. It's a very strong uh, theme that goes throughout that. Uh, second Peter, uh, you'll see knowledge. And knowledge, um, I'm going, just because I'm preaching the series, I'm going to remind you is that he's reminding them of the knowledge. Remember these things. The knowledge comes in two different ways in 1 Peter. It comes in uh, an understanding of who God is and the nature of God, and it comes in an experience of him through our relationship with Jesus. Um, 1 John, Jesus was real. Don't listen to false teachers. Obey Jesus. It's in 1 John that what loving God or loving Jesus looks like is stated. How do you love a spiritual being? Agape, doing whatever is best. How do you do what's best for the creator of the universe who doesn't need anything? John tells you, this is love. This is love for God that we obey What's best for God is what's best for us. Obeying him. Staying out of trouble, so to speak. Um, first, uh, excuse me, second and third John, 
Uh, basically, again, thought to be covered letters, and then uh, Jude, again, the warning against apostasy. Do you have any questions about specific passages in any of these books or letters? In 1 Peter, it says 34 directives. Is that just rules or citations? Do this, do this, do this, do this. Very much like James. Very, very pragmatic. If you want to live, this is how you live. Do this. Last part of 1 Thessalonians does the same thing. Any other questions? Okay, briefly let me run through some of these. I'm going to highlight these. Um, today obviously is a little bit different because this is such a packed session with so many different letters and books. But... Um, so I'm not going to read through all of these, but I'm going to highlight some of them that I have found to be extraordinarily important. Um, and since I'm teaching, I get to say that. I like that. Um, anybody ever hear of Melchizedek? Okay. Raise your hand if you've heard of Melchizedek. Okay. Do you know all about Melchizedek? No. Yeah, neither does anyone else. Um, <laughs> this is one of the two places in Scripture he's mentioned in Hebrews. Um, and by the way, the other is the Old Testament because Melchizedek was a character from the Old Testament and Jesus is compared to him. Is it a Christophany? What? Christophany is talking about it. <laughs> I am sorry, so help me, I thought you said Christofferson. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not somebody I would have related to this, but Christophany. Um, Christophany is an appearance or a revelation of Jesus. Uh, some believe that. I think he was a real guy. But he's mentioned in um, Genesis, and he's only casually mentioned. We don't know a lot about him. And because of that, and because of what we do know, it's easy then to look at Jesus and say, see, like him, Jesus is this. Okay. Um, and he was called the king of Salem, and the word Salem uh, is an English derivation of the word shalom. Anybody have heard the word shalom? Mm -hmm. What's it mean? That's probably closest English. It's actually probably closer to the Hawaiian aloha. It's a very, very big word. Uh, and by the way, identical to the Arabic salam. Do you hear the similarities? They come from the same root language. He was the king of shalom, salam, peace. Do you see the, the parallel, of course, to Jesus? Now, Salem is thought to be the original name for what we know as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So, when it refers to him in the Old Testament that way, it's, the odds are pretty good. He was just the, the local king. But it was obviously a powerful one, or Abraham would not have paid him tribute. Um, anyway, I just find things like that fascinating. If you don't, I apologize, but I'm big there. Uh, Hebrews 6 does talk about apostasy, the inability to return to faith. It's a, it's a fascinating thing because virtually everyone who's ever asked me about that passage 
has come to me and said, I am concerned because I have denied the Lord before. I have turned my back before. Is this about me? Well, if you read the passage carefully, it says you can't repent. Now, you've got to read the word carefully. It does not say you may not. How many times did, did your mother ever say, um, you know, when you say, can I do this? I don't know, can you? My English teacher used to do that. Okay, because there's a difference between may I and can I. Can I, do I have the ability to? Is it possible? May I, will you allow it? Hebrews 6 does not talk about whether God will allow it. It simply states they can't do it. They don't have the ability to. The funny thing is, everybody coming to me wanting to know if that applies to them because they're scared snotless are repenting while they're doing it. And I just, I crack up. It's like, well, look at yourself. You're repenting right now. How can this possibly be about you? But the reason they do that is because they hear uh, their, their child, can I do this? And they think, is this, am, I, am I allowed to repent? God never says no to repentance. Ever. We say no to repentance. That's the problem. We get to the point where we don't even know that we need to repent because we think good things are bad and bad things are good. And that's what Hebrews 6 is about. Somebody who's gotten to that point. So anybody who looks at that and says, I'm scared because I read that and maybe that applies to me, uh, if, they're, if they're afraid of it, that pretty well says, nope, that's not you. So just comfort them with that. Um, chapter 11 is known as the Gallery of Faith. And I love it because so many of those guys are just not exactly heroic. Um, if you've ever studied the, the, the life of Abraham, Abraham was a total jerk. Abraham was a horrible guy. And Abraham was scared snotless of life and, and for much of what we read of him had no faith. So God says, you're going to have a child through your wife. Now, Abraham was getting pretty old at the time but apparently felt pretty confident that he could father a son. On the other hand, he knew Sarah was well past that. There's some pretty obvious biological signs that says your childbearing years are gone. And Sarah was in her 90s. So what does he do? Does he have faith, this gallery of faith guy? No. He goes and gets her young maid pregnant and says, that counts. This is bizarre, right? He goes to a pagan kingdom, and uh, this is in earlier years, and Sarah, who, by the way, was very long-lived, uh, apparently was quite attractive into her old age. And he was scared to death because of how attractive she was that if the king knew she was married to him, the king would simply kill him so he could have her. And if you think that wouldn't happen, think ahead another thousand years or so, and we have the wonderful example of King David doing exactly that. So Abraham's answer was not faith. Abraham's answer was to say, here's my sister, and allow, in one case, the king to take her into his harem, rather than admit, this is my wife, don't touch her because he was afraid for himself. Now, I'm not mocking him. 
what I'm telling you is what I said about Peter when I began that series. I'm thrilled because if Abraham can have faith, I can have faith. If Abraham can have real, lasting, life-changing faith, I can. Because he was just as unfaithful as me. And it's kind of cool that God shows people like that and let them grow in their faith and become faithful and then said, now look. Instead of just looking at Jesus himself, for example, who is a bar so high that we look at him and, and we admire him and we worship him and we say, I can't do that. Next chapter, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, the adoption of, uh, of believers as children of God and a statement, a very clear statement if you're going through hard times of why that is. Why does God allow this? If you ever ask that question, read Hebrews 12. The answer is there. Personal opinion, personal experience, it really helps to know that. I've gone through some pretty hard things. Um, and when I realize, going through them over and over, I go through them because God is creating in me righteousness and peace. He says that in Hebrews 12. Okay, God's got a reason for this. It's not just happening. It's not life is out of control and somehow God's over his head. No. God's got a reason for this. And he's working that in my life. Okay, James. Beautiful passage on listening. Uh, the admonition to do the word, not just hear it. Um, James 2.19, I refer to this, oh, once a month or so, as I'm talking about the three dimensions of faith and the fact that saying I believe, meaning I accept that it's real, is not enough. James says, great, so do the demons. That's in 2.19, that's where that is. A um, lot of other things, I'm just going through some of the big ones here. Um, First Peter Peter says something really horrible, just like Paul does, that we're submit to submit to leaders and even to human institutional leaders. Um, second Peter, Paul, uh, he, he acknowledges Paul's writings as scripture. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's the only time in the Bible uh, that a contemporary of an inspired person says that. Um, first John, statement of uh, witness I was there, I saw these things um, God's forgiveness, John, 1 John 1 9 it's a passage every Christian should remember I mean, memorize that, memorize that and then memorize that because you will need that in your life um, requirement of obedience and this is where the idea of faithfulness is explained in very practical terms because John basically says, if you say you have faith, but you're, you're living in disobedience and rebellion against God, you're a liar. He's, he's real blunt about it. There's no trying to understand things here. He's just telling him, no, nope, you're lying. So change it. And the reason he does that, by the way, isn't to put them down. It's to warn them so that they can change. Second John, it's a reference to the Antichrist, uh, Third John, evil and good action. Jude, um, Michael the Archangel is referenced. And then there's a benediction in Jude that is often quoted. 
Um, again, I strongly encourage you, if you're doing daily readings, um, use these sometimes. Just look through them and see what is in them, and then let that draw you to look at the rest. Okay, next week we're going to wrap up the series with the Revelation of John. And again, I will start with questions. So if you've got those on the Revelation of John, then be ready, because I'll try to answer them. But in essence, we're going to teach all about the Revelation of John in one and a half hour. Which, by the way, is pretty easy to do as long as you don't get sidetracked. Which, of course, we will. What can I tell you? Thank you, guys. Have a good night. I am now turning off the recording.